told somebody when I first came here that one of the things that I wanted to do in the first few weeks and maybe a couple of months that I was here was to take us all back to Calvary, to take us back to what Jesus did for us, because that's the center of everything. But I want to thank the men this morning. I want to thank Adam for the two songs that were before the table, and I want to thank the men who served on the table for the thoughts that they expressed. Because I truly, this morning, believe I have truly worshipped, and I was taken back to the cross this morning. I don't usually re-preach a lesson or a semblance of a certain lesson to the same group of folks twice, but as I wanted to continue our focus upon what Jesus has done for us and taken us back to fall in love with him all over again, I want to preach a lesson this morning that I had the privilege of preaching a semblance of at Green Valley Bible Camp in July. It takes us back to... Jesus once again. I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. I want to continue with what we have started this morning with our songs, with communing with the Lord as we have worshipped. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, it says of Christ Jesus our Lord, now when it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. The word steadfastly in that passage, it means determined. It means firmly fixed. It means immovable. That is what the passage means. That is what steadfastly means, firmly established. It is the very same word, if you recall the story of the Hadean world, how there is that chasm that is firmly fixed, immovable. It's that word. It's that same word as steadfastly. It's firm. In other words, nothing's going to change it. What this means in Luke 9.51 is that Jesus Christ, our Lord, was absolutely determined to go to Jerusalem to accomplish the very purpose for which he came to this earth. And there was absolutely nothing in the universe that was going to stop him. Nothing. That's what it means steadfastly. Neither the Samaritans' rejection, the disciples' denials, nor Judas' betrayal was going to stop him. Neither Herod the Tetrarch, the armies of Rome, nor the plots of evil men were going to prevent him. Not even the schemes of Satan nor the hordes of hell were going to prevent Jesus from going up to Jerusalem to do what he came to do. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one reason, one reason only, <coughs> to literally die for you and for me. 
That's why he went. To be separated from his heavenly father for the first, last, and only time in all of eternity. <coughs> to pay the ultimate price for each one. And that's kind of the key to this sermon this morning. For each one of yours and my sins. To face God's full, unfettered, unleashed, unrestrained, unbelievable wrath for each and every individual thing that you and I have done that is a sin. You see, Jesus loves you. And when I say you, don't take that as y'all. <laughs> take that individually. Jesus loves you as an individual so much that he would rather face that for you than to go through eternity without you. That's how much Jesus loves you. Even after all the sins and evil we have committed, he would rather die and face all of that for us than to face living forever without us. What an awesome God. And so, Luke 9 and verse 51, he set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem. Jesus didn't walk into this unknowingly. Jesus knew every iota of everything that was going to happen to him when he got there. John 18 and verse 4. Not only did he know all things that were going to happen to him, he'd known it for centuries. Psalm 22. He had known every terrible and torturous detail of this plan which God had put in place before time began. Ephesians 3, 6 through 12. Let me illustrate it this way, and I don't mean to be I, I tried to come up with something, and this doesn't even approach it, but I don't mean to say something distasteful <laughs> or horrible, but the fact that Jesus died such cruel death is horrible beyond belief. And so I, I tried to think of an illustration, and, and I guess this was the best that I could come up with, but let's just say for a moment, I know that the church here has been considering possibly rebuilding for some time. Let's assume for a moment that you knew that the church here was going to rebuild, the church decided to, to rebuild a, a, a building, and they sunk every possible resource into it. They right down to the, the, the color of the ribbons in the songbooks. It was perfect. It pleased everybody, which is impossible, I know. But it pleased everybody. I mean, it was perfect. And they poured every resource they could possibly get a hold of into it. It was the perfect building. But you knew before you ever built it that as soon as it was built, there was going to be a terrible fire that would not only destroy the building, but you and your entire family. Would you still build the building? Because you see, on some minuscule, small scale, that's exactly what God did. God had a plan in place to send the perfect Jesus, the crown jewel of heaven, to this earth 
And he knew that in sending him, that Jesus would, would build this perfect life, that Jesus would be flawless and sinless. But he knew that Jesus, having done that, would be destroyed his own son for that very reason. He, that was all part of the plan, and he knew it before he sent him. <coughs> before time began. And yet still he sent him. That's what you're worth to God. Jesus knew what he was in for. Look what he told his disciples on the way to Jerusalem in Mark chapter 10. Would you turn there with me, please, to Mark chapter 10? Look what he told them. He, he knew. He knew it all. Still he went steadfastly, undeterred, because of his great love for you and me. It says there in Mark 10, 32 through 34, now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was going before them. And they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. Then he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to them. He knew it all. Listen, he says, behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him. And they will scourge him. And spit on him. Kill him. The third day he'll rise again. Jesus knew every detail. When he got there, he told his disciples in John 12 and verse 27, Now my soul is troubled. What will I say? Father, save me from this hour? When he gets up there, he says, what do you want me to do? Pray that, that my father will save me for this hour? He said, no. This is the purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus said, the whole reason I'm here is to go through this for you. Turn to me in your Bibles to Mark 14. Verse 32. We're going to begin examining in great detail some of these verses. Mark 14. Verse 32. And they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. He said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him. He began to be troubled and deeply distressed. The word Gethsemane means olive press. And the way they would press the olives is they'd have these big round stone <laughs> like a wheel but with a trough in it and they would have these big rock wheels that would roll over them and over them and, and crush, crush the olives and crush the juice out. Don't, don't miss the imagery here. That's what Gethsemane means. And Jesus went to Gethsemane but the imagery is, is that Jesus at this point begins to be crushed. He begins to be compressed by the unimaginable, the unthinkable, the overwhelming weight and sorrow of all of our sins. Of all of our sins and the punishment for them which he was about to have to take full bore at the hand of a holy, righteous, angry at sin, God. 
It's interesting as we think about the imagery and we think about Gethsemane, meaning olive press or where they crushed him and, and Jesus being crushed beneath this weight. It's interesting to note that some seven centuries or so earlier in Isaiah chapter 53, 5, it uses that very terminology where it says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed. Yeah, he knew exactly what was coming. For our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. The scripture, seven centuries before, uses the word crushed. In verse 33 of Mark 14, it says there that Jesus began to be troubled. The American Standard Version says sore troubled. It means great distress. It means this incredible, awful anguish or distress. In fact, it says, goes on to say, he was troubled and deeply distressed. You know what that word means? You can look that up in a, in a Greek dictionary, this term that we translate deeply distressed. Listen to what it means. <coughs> It means to throw into terror. Think about that, Jesus. To throw into terror or amazement. It means to alarm thoroughly. It means to terrify or to strike with terror. Now, as you think about that, if this is the first time hearing that, you may think, wait a minute, this was Jesus. This was God in the flesh. This was... Jesus was terrified? <coughs> Jesus was terrified at something? That's what the word means. And we might struggle to understand how Jesus, being the Son of God, could be in such deep distress or terror or amazement. Jesus, though, according to Mark 14, 33, was beginning to be compressed, greatly distressed, thrown into terror, he said as much himself in the very next verse. Look at the very next verse, verse 34. He said, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful. We often talk about our souls in reference to our souls being saved. And we talk about it. We don't often think about Jesus' soul, but he said, my soul. What was he saying? He said, right to the deepest part of me is overwhelmed with this, this sorrow that it almost kills The Bible tells us in Luke 22, 41, that Jesus then went a stone's throw beyond them. And Mark 14, 35 says he, he fell on the ground, probably beneath the crushing weight of, of all that was about to occur. And, and Jesus, at that point, if we put all the gospel accounts together, he begins pouring himself out in prayer and he begs his father three times, Father, if there's some other way to do this, please let this cup pass from me. Yet not my will, but thine be done. And, and, and he cries that out three times, according to Matthew's account. <clears throat> and in the midst of that, that terrible anguish and that crushing weight and, and all that's going on in that terrible agony, only Luke records the angel's visit. Turn to me to Luke 22. And again, we put all of these gospels together to get the full picture of what went on. But in Luke 22, Luke is the only one that records the angel's visit, and this is what it says beginning at verse 41. Love to hear those Bible pages turn. 
Luke 22 and verse 41. He was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. We don't know what the angel said. The angel was there to strengthen him. Don't know if the angel said anything. The angel was there and strengthened him. But have you ever noticed? It wasn't that he sweat like great drops of blood, and then because of his, his agony, the angel came. That's not what it says. It says the angel was there first, and then after that, even with the strengthening from heaven, he's still in such agony. That he prays even more earnestly, and his sweat becomes like great drops of blood. That's after the angel's incursion. Where would he been without that? Why so much terror? Why so much horror? I mean, when you stop and think about it, some of our first century brethren died some terrible deaths. Nero, according to secular history, lit them up and burned them alive, some of them were flayed alive, some of them were thrown to wild beasts, we, we, we know that. Some of them died these excruciatingly horrible deaths, and if we read Fox's Book of Martyrs, we see that some of them died peacefully in the midst of those horrible deaths. So I don't believe that Jesus' terror or anguish was all because he was going to die a horrible death. Yes, that was a horrible death, there's no doubt about it, and yes, it was painful. But human beings face painful death as well. Without this much terror, it seems. So, so why all the terror? Why all the, the, the overwhelming anger? I mean, he's God in the flesh. Why? Here's why. We know, as we've discussed previously, it took one sin for Adam and Eve to be thrown out of the garden. It took one sin for Moses not to make it into the promised land. And we know... It takes one sin for you and I not to make it into heaven. In other words, the price for one sin is eternity in hell. Is that right? One. Right? That's right. Because God is that holy and righteous. It's not that God is a bad God. It's because God is so good that one sin can keep us out of his presence forever. One sin. What is the price of one sin? Eternity in hell. And the thought of eternity in hell, when we really understand it, ought to just blow our minds. Turn with me to Mark 9. Look at this with me. Jesus used this valley outside of the walls of Jerusalem called Gehenna. And he, tried, he used that as an earthly illustration, trying to get their minds around what hell was like. And this valley of the son of Hinnom, as it's called in the Old Testament, this this was a place where they threw diseased animal carcasses and what was left of sacrifices, and they threw all their waste out there. How many of you are old enough to remember when there was a dump? I mean, like a burning, smoking, rat-infested, stinky, smelly dump. Yeah, me too, okay. This valley, this Gehenna outside of the wall of Jerusalem was like that. It was a place where putrid, burning stench of flesh and flies and just terrible, everything was piled there and it was like a dump 
and it burned all the time, and Jesus used that as an illustration of eternal hell. Look what he says in Mark 9, verse 42. Start at 43, he says, If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And, and he uses that Gehenna illustration. Then he goes on, he said, if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. He's using figures of speech, we understand, but what's he saying? You do whatever you've got to do to not go to hell, because it's an awful, terrible, you can't imagine how bad it is. He said, it's better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell into the fire that'll never be quenched, where the worm doesn't die and the fire's not quenched. If your eye causes you to sin, pull it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into the hellfire where the worm doesn't die and the fire's not quenched. He said, you do whatever you can. This place is so awful and so horrible and so bad, you don't want to go there for any reason. And yet, that is the price that a righteous, holy God demands and requires for just one sin. So what does that mean? Let's do a little math. One sin means eternity there. So two sins would mean two eternities there if the price is right, right? And that means three sins. If, if the cost of one is eternity in hell, then the cost of three should be three eternities. Now, we can't even get our mind around eternity, but we certainly can't get our mind around three eternities. What if you had to pay for the equivalent of eternity in hell for each sin you've committed this past week? Think about that. If one sin is an eternity in hell, and we can't even get our mind around that, what if you had to face the equivalent of eternity in hell for every single sin over and over you've committed this past week? What about this past month? What if you had to face the equivalent of eternity in hell for every sin that your family has committed within the past month? What if you had to face the equivalent of eternity in hell for every single sin that everybody in this auditorium has committed in the past year? What if you had to face the equivalent of eternity in hell for every single sin individually that everybody in the town of Shoto has committed in the past year? What if you had to face the equivalent of eternity in hell? Because that's the just price for every single sin that everybody in the state of Oklahoma or this country or this world all the way back to the Garden of Eden throughout all those ages and lifetimes has committed. You see, that's what Jesus was facing. <coughs> Jesus was facing the equivalent of eternity in hell for every single sin because that's the cost of one sin. That is what Jesus Christ was forced to come face to face with that very night in the garden. As our sin bearer, Jesus was going to have to pay the full penalty for every single one of our sins. Every one of them. And every one of them demanded eternity in hell. He was going to have to endure a punishment from God that satisfied the full justice of God. Can you? I cannot even begin to imagine. Can you? Think about it in those terms. 
equal of eternity in hell for every sin that's been committed since Genesis 3. He was going to have to face it all, all at once, in an all-out assault on sin by the full-blown wrath of God. That was overwhelming even to the Son of the Living God. That is an overwhelming thing. But how could a little less than three days, full days, worth of death and suffering be considered the equivalent substitute of such a thing? Here's how. Because time has no bearing on God. Time has no bearing on him. Jesus is forever. Even the finite suffering of an infinite being is equivalent to the infinite suffering of finite beings. For him to whom time means nothing. Time, by the way, was something God created to help govern his creation. Because the scripture tells us more than once, tells us twice in the New Testament, before time began. Time was something God put in place. And, and God operates above time. And so that's why a day is like a thousand years with the Lord and a thousand years like a day. Time has no bearing on him. And so for him to be subjected for a millisecond, a, a, an infinite being, is the equivalent of us as finite beings spending an infinite time in hell. And as all of that hit him, the equivalent of eternity in hell for every single sin that any man has ever committed. As he was about to face that absolute and overwhelming force of God the Father unleashed on him, is it any wonder, brethren, is it any wonder he said, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass. Is it any wonder the scripture says in the original language that he was terrified? Consider his terror in Gethsemane the next time you read the words of Hebrews 5, 7 where it says he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Jesus offered up prayers with loud cries and tears and the angel that strengthened him and, and still he's, he's pouring out his prayers and it's, it's sweating like drops of blood and, and he's intense and he's overwhelmed and he's, he's amazed and astonished and, and terrified and all of these things. Jesus being God in the flesh also, we, we make a mistake sometimes with our vernacular. We talk about Jesus carried our sins to the cross. No, he didn't. He carried a cross until he couldn't carry it anymore because they had beaten him so bad. But the Bible doesn't say that Jesus carried our sins. You know what the Bible actually says? In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says he was made to be sin for us. That's what scripture says. You can look it up. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him who knew no sin to be sin. Not just to carry them, but to be sin. For us. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. You want to talk about being blessed? that we might become the righteousness. 
all those sins that Jesus paid for, the equivalent of an eternity in hell for, for you and me, why did he do it? So that you and I might become righteous. So that we can stand before the Father on Judgment Day and have God say, no sin. Jesus, it says in Acts 2 and verse 23, was delivered up by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. It was by the grace of God that he tasted death for everyone. Hebrews 2, 9. Brethren, that's grace. That's grace. By the grace of God, he tasted death for all of us. Listen. God gave his son, John 3, 16. He sent his son, John 6, 38. He delivered up his son, Acts 2.23. He smote his own son, Mark 14.27. He laid our sins on him, crushed him, and put him to grief, Isaiah 53. He perfected him through suffering, Hebrews 2.10, and made him our sin offering, 2 Corinthians 5.21. It was an anticipation of God's full-blown wrath for each sin we've ever committed. It was an anticipation of that and his separation from the Holy Father because of those sins that he became, as it were, as the scripture says. And his being, mercy, his being, his being at the mercy of evil incarnate, it's those things that made Jesus that night so sorrowful. It's what made him so terribly sorrowful, his tears so tortured, and his prayer so powerful that night before he was crucified. For you. For you. And for me. Jason Jackson has written, he entered into the crucible of suffering as only a divine person in the flesh could. In spite of the sorrowful alienation from the Father, he willingly submitted to suffering inconceivable agonies according to the divine will on the basis of his compassion for your lost condition. In other words, we must never forget that our Lord Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, went through every bit of that. Every last horrible, painful, overwhelming, terrifying bit of that for one reason. Out of his love for you and me and his Father and for absolutely no other reason under the sun. It's the only reason Jesus went through all that, for you, for me, and out of love for his Father. That's it. There's no other reason. None. Zip. None. And so Jesus offered up himself to them, and they arrested him that night in the garden. They took him back to Caiaphas' house, and throughout the rest of those hours, Jesus was beaten to a bloody pulp. He could have stopped it. All he had to say was, Father? He said, 
to the disciples. He said, don't, don't you think I'd call my, my heavenly father and he'd send at once more than 12 legions of angels? But soldiers ganged up on him, brutal, merciless Roman soldiers, and they beat that poor man to a bloody pulp. Then they took him out. If you've seen the movie The Passion, scenes may come to mind. But they took him out and they scourged him. And they ripped that man open with those whips and that bone or glass or whatever they had, rocks in the end of those, those scourging whips. And they laid into that poor man until he was just a bloody mass of bleeding flesh. Jesus took it. And they took him over and they presented him Herod and the soldiers there mocked him and they put this robe on him and, and with that back wide open and bleeding and then ripped that robe off of him. They took him back and the poor man had bled out so bad that he couldn't carry his own cross all the way. And at any time he could have stopped that with just a word to his father, but he would rather go through that for you and me than to spend eternity without us. And so he did. And they crucified him there, casting lots for his garment. He went through six hours, and he yielded up his spirit. And then the real suffering began. See, when we think of the cross, and we think of the table, we often think of just the physical agony. Folks, don't miss the fact that he had to face the equivalent of eternity in hell for every sin ever committed. And that was more than physical, far more than just that horrible physical death that we often think about. <coughs> but just as he was delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, he was also raised up. And here's the good news. He was also raised up by that same God's purpose and plan and power. He was also raised up. God having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it, Acts 2, 23 and 4. Here's the question that I have for you, and, and you can go ahead and close your Bible. Go ahead, I'll wait. Because I really want you to stay focused. I really want you to think. I have a question. Was all that planning and all of that praying and all of that pain and all of that suffering all of that taking your place and paying the price for your sins, paying what amounted to the equivalent of eternity in hell for every sin you've ever committed on an individual basis, did Jesus suffer that in vain? Did Jesus go through all of that? Did God have that all in vain? He did if you have not accepted that gift. That gift does nobody any good if they don't accept it. We're coming up on the Christmas season and if somebody goes out and they, they plan and, or they make you something beautiful and they invest themselves in it and they just can't wait to give it to you, but they give you this gift and you refuse to accept it, it doesn't do you any good. If you refuse to accept the gift of God's grace and forgiveness and his sacrifice on your behalf, then all of that pain and suffering and that plan and paying and, and everything that God went through and everything that Jesus went through and, and all of this that we've talked about, it's pointless. 
if you don't accept the gift, doesn't do you any good. Do you really want to stand before God Almighty on Judgment Day and tell him that his sacrifice just wasn't enough? That his gift wasn't good enough? That his love wasn't deep enough? Let me share with you some good news from a short article by Brother Kevin Colley, and then we'll close. The title is, He Had Nothing on Him. The night of Jesus' betrayal and arrest, he met with his disciples to give them final words of exhortation in the face of his impending death. During the conversation with his disciples, Jesus said, I will no longer talk with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing on me. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father has given me commandments, so I do. Arise and let us go from here, John 14, 30 and 31. Jesus knew that Satan was behind all of the efforts to have him killed. Jesus also knew that there was no just reason for him to be killed. Satan didn't have anything on Jesus because Jesus was innocent and had never committed sin. Satan had nothing on him. There's no doubt, though, that Satan has a long list of things on you and me and everyone else in the world, for that matter. Does Satan have something on you? You ever sinned? If you've ever sinned, raise your hand. Does Satan have something on you? If you've sinned, he has something on you. Unless that sin's gone. Let me continue the article. However, for those who faithfully trust and obey Jesus, God only sees what Satan has on Christ, which is a big, fat nothing. Even though Satan desired it and caused it to happen in some sense, the Father had planned to use Jesus' death to accomplish his redemptive purposes. Satan's greatest victory turned into his greatest defeat because he lost power over all who are in the body of Christ. He wraps it up this way, and this is my invitation. What does Satan have on you? If you are not in Christ, if you've never accepted the gift, if you have not been baptized into Christ, if you have not gotten into Christ, if you are not in the body of Christ, where that blood covers your sins, then Satan will use all of your sins against you on Judgment Day to have you justly sentenced to death. But if you're in Christ, Satan's got nothing on you. You know why? Because he's got nothing on Christ. So this morning you have two options. If you have never accepted that gift, God tells us that if we repent and are baptized, that is something that we do for the forgiveness of our sins, not after our sins have been forgiven. He says we need to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of our sins. We need to be born again of the water and the spirit or we're not going to enter the kingdom. So we repent, we're baptized for the forgiveness of our sins. We have our sins washed away. That's where the gift is. And we have to accept that gift on God's terms. If not, then on Judgment Day, you're going to have to face God with Satan having something on you. Or you can accept Christ's payment and proposal for your personal adoption here this morning by obeying and going through the symbolic death, burial, and resurrection 
of Christian baptism, showing that you are by faith accepting that gift that God paid so much to give. God's holding that gift out to you this morning. If you've never been baptized into Christ, he wants to wash away your sins. So what are you going to do? You're going to face God on Judgment Day, have an answer for your own sins and losing? Or would you like to accept that gift of forgiveness right now? God said, I'll give it to you. Here's the gift. All you've got to do is come and get it. You want your sins washed away if you've never done that? The invitation is yours. Or if you have had your sins washed away in the waters of baptism, you've accepted that gift on God's terms. But you're struggling with the sin. You're struggling to stay clean. You're struggling. We'll pray for you. We'll pray with you. We'll do anything that you need for us to do to help you maintain that clean status that God gave to you in that perfect gift, Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you have a need to respond in any way, please come to the front as we stand and sing.